2: than certainly what it was 50 years ago, or even five years ago, right? And one of the things that we're really, really digging through right now is the degree to which artificial intelligence is impacting markets, market processing, market pricing. I'll give you an example. So on, uh, let's see, today's Saturday. So on Thursday, intraday, the Dow was down like 600 points, right? And of course, everybody thought, oh, here we go, it's just, the, the bottom that we thought happened on Monday and then the historic thousand-point increase on the Dow on Wednesday it just seemed to confirm that we had a bottom in place, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as the show develops, just in terms of the technical things that we were seeing and, and what we think about that. But intraday on Thursday, the Dow's down 600 points. So there's a there, there's something called a market-on-close order, Right. And the order goes in and it just basically says, look, on the close, this is what I want to have happen. And boom, the computers trigger it and, and it gets done. Leading into the close of the market, there were $200 billion of buy orders that literally in a, in a split second switched to $2 billion of, sell, of buy orders, right? So they went from $200 million a sell to $2 billion a buy in the blink of an eye. That's not the kind of thing that could have been done with any ability, you know, 15 years ago. I don't even know if it could have been done reasonably well five years ago, but it is being done today. And so we have to admit and we have to look at the the way in which computers are impacting the market. The question that some people have asked me, and I've been asking myself, is have they changed the rules, right? Have computers changed the rules by... Which investments function? By the way markets function. By you know, is, is that what's giving us this massive volatility? It's hard to know because I don't, I don't have any personal conversations with the guys who run the biggest hedge funds in the world, right? Um, the, the Black Rocks that are controlling trillions of dollars, or the Vanguards that are controlling trillions of dollars, or Fidelity, or whatever the case might be. Have the biggest managers on the planet acquiesced their trading decisions to a computer? Are they pressing a button that the computer tells them to press, either on the buy side or the sell side of a specific subset of assets? Tim, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does, but I feel fairly comfortable in saying that there's certainly a possibility that that could be the case. And and so the things that we're digging through and working very 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 hard to identify are not only identifying the regular traditional things that make markets move like fundamentals. Fundamentals still and always will have an impact on how markets move. Right? Is a company cheap? Is a company expensive? Uh, does a company have a product line that they're rolling out that's the, the you know the best thing since sliced bread? Whatever the case might be, fundamentals have always had an impact on markets and will always have an impact in terms of uh, the way in which investments in markets function. But the next question is, from a technical perspective, are computers putting in buy-and-sell orders that only, if you understand how to deal with technical analysis, will you be able to read? And so we're melting those two methodologies together to help us make better choices and better decisions and at the same time help us help us have the process of reading the machines quicker you know because if machines are in fact making the decisions that they sometimes appear to be making mm-hmm. they make they make them really really fast
1: <laughs> is, there, is there any fear chris i mean we're 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 still <clears throat> being investigated whether the russians affected our the the the, the previous presidential election Is there any concern out there that someone could, I guess, in a sense, manipulate the markets?
2: That's a really great question. Um, That's not something that's typically been discussed at, you know, any major level that that we've been involved with or, you know, any of the conferences and conversations that have gone on from a regulatory perspective. There's always a concern that that somebody could potentially breach, you know, a, a firewall so to speak, at any one of the major um, custodians that are out there. If, for example, like a Fidelity or a Schwab or a, an E-Trade or something like that. But I can tell you from firsthand knowledge that these these, uh, these companies have amazing protocols in place to help protect client dollars and assets. The question you're posing is, is there a way in which someone can um, positively or negatively affect the movement of one or more securities and, you know, therefore kind of bring about the future? In other words, can they impact the movement of Amazon stock to go up 10 points mm-hmm. so that if they bought into it before, that they make a pile of money? That's a great question. Um, I, I suppose the answer to that is that if there's enough money being pushed in the direction of that trade, that that's certainly possible. The interesting thing, Tim, is that when you understand technical analysis of markets, you ne- you don't necessarily predict it, but you can sort of see it coming. It, mm-hmm. it, um, it's really hard to explain over the radio because I don't have visuals. <laughs>
1: it,
2: but there are things that jump out at you when you engage in a certain form of technical analysis that say, you know, that looks weird. That doesn't look right. That's odd. That's a different kind of movement than what we would expect, or this pattern is developing... And in the past, this pattern has resulted in the following: eighty percent of the time, you know, I I say to Mike all the time that you know the world I live in is one of probabilities and not certainties.
1: Mm. I well, in in a sense, it um, and you know we don't want to uh, create doom and gloom out there because, as, as you said, most of these, um, if not all of them, have um, some serious safeguards in place. But it almost, in a way, it's it's. You know, the fear could be cyber inside trading, so to speak, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly has, I, I know that that has caused regulators concern, uh, and I know that they have taken steps to try and help minimize that as, as best as they can. But, you know, let's face it, most of the time governments and regulators and all these sort of folks, for as good a job as they do, are oftentimes understaffed. Undermanned, and in many instances, behind some of the technological advances that are going on from you know some of these groups that would you know like to bring about um, you know uh, chaos or 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 difficulty. <clears throat> At the same time, what I don't want to do is give in to you know a conspiracy theory, right? Not that you're suggesting that this is the case or not that you're bringing up that hey, this is this is going to happen. Um, I I think the possibility of a major organization um, somehow impacting markets to affect a trade in their benefit would be isolated to some type of a security that they could easily move, and that would be one that doesn't trade a lot of volume on a given day. In other words, to try and affect the movement of a company like, say, Amazon, that trades as much as they trade you know, tens of millions of shares in a day with the price that they trade at, right? It, it would take so much money to try and move that kind of company or that kind of stock that I'm not so sure that any one organization would have capacity to do that, or even one government, right?
1: Well, at the same time, though, that's why I think it's important we have about three minutes left in this segment, Chris, that um, people work, you know, they don't sit at home with their laptop or, you know, in between breaks at the office they're checking their stocks. They really need to work with an advisor such as yourself at Capstone Wealth Management, because you d- you do that for them, don't you? You monitor that stuff.
2: Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, we monitor the stuff on, a, on an hourly basis, much less on a daily basis. I and mean, that's not to suggest we make shifts or movements on an hourly basis, because sometimes you have to let the crazy play out, right? You, you sometimes have to, to let the panic dissipate and and move away, Um But I can tell you this, for those who have the ability to go back to what it felt like in the 80s where you got a statement once a year versus every four seconds checking your stuff online, you feel way better. And, you know, I know that with conversations that I've had with clients, even though this has been a difficult year and this has certainly been a a very difficult quarter, um, much less month, you know, that the fact that they don't have to think about it a whole lot has has minimized, in, in many cases, the, uh, you know, the degree of fear. And, you know, let's face it, most of the time we humans don't make great decisions when you make them from a position of fear. And if there's any one thing we try to help minimize is that fear quotient, you know, by helping people recognize, look, we're going to take all of the valuable information we have available to us and all the tools that we've generated and created over the past 25 years and find a way to implement them in a way that helps you get through when messes like this happen, because they do happen. So now we just help you find a path through it.
1: Yeah, the successful investor, Chris, um, he or she takes the emotion out of it. They have to, don't they?
2: You do. You know, if, if, you, if you give into it, that's a great point. You know, if you give into emotion when it comes to dealing with money and investments, you're ordinarily just going to make a wrong choice. You know, we say all the time, especially around the office. Look, if you're thinking your gut is, should tell you this, then chances are you might want to do the opposite, because your gut will lead you in many cases in the wrong direction. And and we kind of see that when markets bottom. And I, and I've, I'll develop this a little bit more in the next segment. But you you can there are some items and some indicators that help you to identify when fear has reached a a level that have caused people to throw in the towel. And when they're throwing in the towel. It just means that the institutions are picking up the pieces
1: good stuff here's Chris Klein a registered investment advisor at Capstone Wealth Management Chris when we come back what, what, what are we going to touch on next
2: So, I'm going to talk a little bit about whether or not this past week was what we would call a capitulatory lull and if it is a buying opportunity or something different.
1: All right, good stuff, my friend. Stay right there. When we come back, as Chris said, a lot more to get to. Tim Scott filling in for Mike Pilz today. Stay with us back in just a bit here on the Big Ten Seventy. The Big Ten and iHeartRadio. And welcome back. We continue our Saturday morning conversation as we do each and every week here in the 9 o'clock hour with Chris Klein from Capstone Wealth Management. Chris, I don't know if, if 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 your family had a conversation like my family did over the weekend. You know, it's the holidays. Everybody gets together. And uh, you had people talking about how much money they lost in their portfolio. And then others saying, well, I didn't even look. And others saying that, well, you know what? If you lose it, just be patient; it'll come back. I'm sure that, you know, maybe conversations were had with you and your team and, and their family members. And I'm sure your phone rang a lot in the last two week or so, huh?
2: Yeah, you know, it, the phone didn't ring too much, but you know, there were there were some emails, of course, that came in just asking a few questions about um, you know the, the 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 degree of volatility and things of that nature. One of the things that we attempt to do is uh, is kind of front-run that that fear quotient by, you know, sending out emails that contain our perspective on, you know, not only what we're seeing, but the the, the the historical context of it. You know, why does history matter? Well, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? And why does it rhyme in markets? It uh, rhymes in markets historically because uh, people are fairly predictable. I mean... When it comes to money, people act sort of the same over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> and so it gives you an opportunity to, to kind of peer into that psychology as it relates to the market and, and then identify whether or not some of the things that are happening in terms of price action uh, is, is good or bad or, or neutral, right? And so um, it, those newsletters that we send out for anyone that might have any interest, you can certainly see them archived uh, on our website, which you can get to at careformywealth.com. I try to write about things on LinkedIn. uh, so If you're a follower, you'll get that fairly quickly. If You can follow me on Twitter at careformywealth. Obviously, the last couple of weeks, I haven't had a lot of time to throw stuff out there because we've been very busy just going through the process of how do we best structure Client portfolios, given the degree of volatility that we've been dealing with, and, and emotion has been one of those things that, when you go through, well, let's face it, December was just a—it was a crash. I mean, you know, December alone to the bottom, which occurred at least at this point on Monday in a shortened session, nevertheless, your markets were off like fifteen percent in just the month of December. So. You know, it's that kind of movement that's not rational. It's not normal. It's the kind of stuff that's born out of fear. It's just unadulterated panic that people watch happen and then say, that's it, I quit. I can't take it. Sometimes we forget, and it's easy to do this, Tim, but sometimes we forget that for every seller, there's a buyer. In other words, when somebody moves to sell their shares into the market, somebody's buying them, right? Right. It's an efficient market in that there's always a willing buyer on the side of a willing seller. The reason prices oftentimes drop super hard is that there's more people interested in selling, and so they have to create equilibrium. And so to find buyers, they have to ratchet the price down. And the opposite is true when there's more of a buying pressure where people are interested in in buying into shares. So the things that we watch on a constant basis to help us get an idea of the degree of psychology that is playing into the market, is price action, things like put-call ratios. <clears throat> put-call ratios are just their options, right? So the Chicago Board Options Exchange has two major forms of options. One's a call, one's a put. If you buy a call, you expect the market to go up. If you buy a put, you expect the market to go down. And more often than not, if you watch the small individual investor play out the way they're buying puts and calls, it gives you a good idea to do the opposite. So one of the things that we saw this past week was a put-call ratio literally hit the highest level in history, meaning there were (laughs) – the number hit 1.74, which which anything above 1 would typically, from a contrarian perspective, tell you it's a massive buying opportunity, right? Right. Because what people bought were way, way more protective puts compared to aggressive calls that they would expect the market to go up on. So I know it's contrary to you know perspective in that well we're going to do the opposite of what it says, but that's just historically how it's played out. Fear levels reached such uh, a crescendo that people were doing everything and anything to try and in their minds protect themselves and spending money to hedge their portfolios, and it's oftentimes at that moment that you get a turnaround or very close to it. And so I think it was on Friday of last, not this past week, but the week prior, we hit that super, super historically high level uh, of of put-call ratio. So that's a a notch in the belt of saying, all right, again, that's not normal. When you get to the extremes is oftentimes where you want to be looking for the opposite movement. And so that was one element. On Monday, you had uh, uh, the fear levels. You can measure fear in the market by following something called the VIX. And we've talked about this a number of times on on my show, I know, throughout the years. Um, But the VIX is this thing that trades on the market and helps you measure fear. And when it is elevated, it suggests that fear levels are super high and ordinarily very, very close to a turnaround. Typically, anytime we see the VIX trade above 25, we'd call that elevated. And it has historically coincided with a fairly good time to be buying into markets and certainly not, not selling into them. <clears throat> Ever since October the 29th, we've been either elevated or very close to it. And on Monday, it spiked to roughly 37. So that's pretty high. We'd like to see it hit above 40, but you know, hey, 37 is pretty darn high when it comes to measuring fear, especially on the heels of a historic level of put-call ratios. And so what that did is it told us that, hey, you know, this Monday, this past Monday, which was Christmas Eve on a a shortened trading session, that might have been the day that that people just said, I quit. I can't take it. Interestingly enough, Tim, it's at those moments Mm -hmm. that, Oftentimes, put in a substantial, a substantial historical bottom, and and so that's that's the sort of stuff that we're watching right now from a psychological perspective. On top of that, we look for super super negative headlines. <laughs> More often than not, when you get a historical figure or someone uh, in power saying something at a at a very very difficult time that that coincides with that, oftentimes we want to do the opposite. And on December. I forget, 18th or 19th, maybe 20th, uh, CNN posted a headline on their website that was quoting Alan Greenspan saying the bull market's dead. (laughs) Greenspan has a horrible history of calling tops and bottoms of markets. But most people listening might remember back in the day where he said, yeah, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread is, is the adjustable rate mortgage. Well, that didn't turn out so good.
1: No, not so much.
2: A lot of people. And he said that almost at the top of that market, too. You know, And and so we know that government officials in many instances have had a really, really, really bad history of calling market tops and calling market bottoms. And so interestingly enough, we actually like to see these death knell headlines start to hit when coupled with these levels of anxiety and fear and and heightened measurements that we would read on a put call or a VIX ratio or, or something like that. And uh, and so that was a, a, an interesting uh, development. I, I'm sure it didn't make people feel great and mm-hmm. probably probably increased the amount of selling into the panic that occurred. Um, but, you know, to your point that you made in the first segment, that's the kind of stuff that happens when investors don't necessarily have a hand to hold or an advisor to work with that at least can tell them. Hey.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's bluehost.com Wondersuite.
2: Hey look, I know this sucks. This is really a difficult environment and it feels terrible. But this is the kind of time that we've got to kind of work through. And in some instances, we'll adjust the portfolios to get rid of something that might be lagging and, and hold on to stuff that's holding up or, or, or pay attention just a little bit more, especially to stuff that's moving just incredibly wildly. Um, but it's really uncommon that it'd be a good idea to sell into that panic,
1: Right. Mm-hmm. He is uh, Chris Klein from uh, Capstone Wealth Management. Uh, We're here with him every Saturday morning at this time. His website is careformywealth.com. You can call their number at 866-596-9886, 866-596-9886. I think it was funny last week in a sense, follow me on this, Chris, that you had that incredible low, and then the Badgers, led by Alec Ingold, show up and ring the opening bell and what happens <laughs> they have their largest single day in, in in wall street history
2: yeah i think we need to get them to ring the bell every day what do you think i uh, think
1: so <laughs> and then and then you saw what happened on thursday just the, the, the luck continued so maybe we'll just have alec ingold whenever there's a big dip we'll just fly him back out to new york and he can ring the bell on wall street
2: I, that's a great idea i might even be interested to help him <laughs> do that i you know we'll we'll raise the kitty here at the office and see let's get
1: Alex back up the ring again. <laughs> it was a, it, uh, you know, it's interesting, though, when you talk about um, you know, what Alan Greenspan said and others have said as well. I mean, we're in record territory for this bull market stuff. And it, it doesn't seem a week, and in some instances, a day goes by that if someone doesn't say market correction or even that heavy R word in recession. Yeah. You
2: know, so here's the interesting thing. Historically speaking, when you when you think of a recession, it's a good idea to know what makes them come and, and to identify that they're coming, because ordinarily, historically speaking, when you get a recession, stock markets fall apart, right? But it's not the opposite. You don't typically get the market falling apart and then a recession happening. Ordinarily, what you get is um, a few different things. You get a yield curve that inverts, you know, We've we've beat the yield curve half to death on this show, but... For anyone who might be listening to us for the very first time, the yield curve is just simply a graphical depiction of interest rates from a short-term to a long-term perspective. And ordinarily, short-term interest rates are going to be lower than long-term interest rates. Well, when that relationship inverts, meaning, say, a two-year Treasury is paying a higher interest rate than a 10-year Treasury, that is not normal. That is the credit market saying this market that we're in, specifically the economy, is in some trouble. And ordinarily, when you get an inverted yield curve, somewhere between six to nine months after that happens, our economy works itself into a recession. So it's been a really, really, really good indicator. One of the other things that you see that, uh, that happens before the recession occurs is an increase in unemployment numbers, right? So you get three things happening before the stock market traditionally falls apart or completely falls out of bed. One, you get an inverted yield curve, which we do not have. We have a flat curve, but we do not have an inverted curve, at least from the 2 to 10, uh, 2-year to 10-year ratio, that's the most important one to look at. The second thing you get is a rise in unemployment claims. We don't have that. And the third thing that you get that has historically always marked the end of the bull market and the beginning stages of a damaging bear market that you want to avoid is when the Fed stops raising rates and starts cutting them. Oddly enough, we don't have good history of any market falling into a massive bear market while the Fed is raising rates. It happens the moment that they start cutting them. So we don't have the three typical, traditional, historical elements that take place before signaling a recession or a bear market. So the question becomes, Again, here are these four words that I hate. Is this time different, right? One of the things that we had, you know, from the, the finan- great financial crisis uh, onward for you know roughly 10 years or so, uh, or eight, nine years, rather, was, uh, was this quantitative easing stuff that the Fed did, right? They were buying all these garbage bonds and mortgage-backed securities and derivative assets and stuff off of bank balance sheets. And so they were, they were increasing the degree of liquidity in the system by massive amounts. I mean, their, their balance sheet went from a few hundred billion up to four, four and a half, almost five trillion. And, uh, and some people have said, well, why did they do that? Well, they did that because the Fed has one thing that, well, two things that none of us have, and that is essentially unlimited money and unlimited time. So, so they implemented this process of instituting and creating and implementing liquidity into the system. And interestingly enough, if you look at how the stock market responded, every time they integrated a the quantitative easing cycle into the system, the market went up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: When the Fed stopped with a quantitative easing process, the market either marched sideways or found itself in a slight downtrend or, or, or a bit of downside volatility. Well, what, what have we been getting? We've been getting since basically 2016 the Fed tightening the, the monetary conditions of this market. They've been raising rates just this month. They raised rates for the ninth time in this cycle. The other thing that they've been doing is allowing bonds on their balance sheet to do what we call roll-off, Right. And so rolling a bond off of a balance sheet is nothing more than letting it mature. Historically, what they would do is when a bond matured on their balance sheet, they'd buy another one to replace it or at least maintain the degree of liquidity that's in the system. Right? They started out with roughly a $10 billion a month roll-off, and they've allowed it to ratchet up until now. We're at $50 billion a month. Now, the two questions that come to mind when you think of this is, one, in the grand scope of our economic structure and the Fed's balance sheet, is $50 billion really that big of a deal? Eh, I would argue no, not really. But nevertheless, we have to take into consideration that that $50 billion a month roll-off, as it accumulates, might be negatively impacting some of the price movements that we're seeing, Right. Um, and, and, and so as that happens, there have been some who have said, there's a guy by the name of Jeff Gundlock. He's, he's kind of this bond market guru that you see on TV a lot. And he's been wrong as much as he's been right. Him, you know, as it relates mm-hmm. to some of his, uh, his calls on markets, but heck, I, we can all say that, you know, those of us that have been in this long enough. And if you do this long enough, and if you're willing to put yourself out there as much as we do, there are times where you're going to be wrong. <laughs> And we want to try and own up to those instances where that occurs. But one of the things that Jeff has said is that for uh, for roughly every um, $100 billion reduction in the Fed's balance sheet, which right now would be two months' worth, right, because they'd let $50 billion a month roll off, for every $100 billion in reduction of their balance sheet is equivalent to about a quarter-point rate hike. Well, okay, if we presume that that's true, that would mean that financial markets and the economy in general – have had to absorb the equivalent of not nine rate increases but thirteen basically an additional point nine percent or about the equivalent of a three point four percent fed funds rate well alright if that's true if we do consider it that to be an impactful scenario and and we presumed that we had a three point four percent fed funds rate well then that would mean we do in fact have an inverted yield curve So. There are some things that we're considering that make us step back and ask ourselves, is this time different?
1: Mm, Good question as we go to break. Chris Klein with us from Capstone Wealth Management. Again, the website, careformywealth.com. Toll free at 866, call him 596-9886. 866-596-9886. Good stuff. We'll continue in just a bit. Stay with us here on the Big Ten 70, 1070. 1070 AM and 100.9 FM. Hey, welcome back. We uh, appreciate the fact you're spending time with us on this Saturday morning. Here's Chris Klein. Always fun when I get to fill in for Mike Pilch in this program. You learn so much each and every Saturday morning with Chris in this 9 o'clock hour. You can uh, speak to him and his team, Capstone Wealth Management, the website again, careformywealth.com, or call him toll-free, too, at 866-596-9886, 866-596-9886. Chris, I'm assuming we should pick up where you left off, because it's got many of us thinking, so is is it different this time?
2: hmm? Yeah, great question. Um, The one thing that could potentially cause it to be different this time Mm -hmm. is how you consider us to be in, in where you consider us to be in terms of the debt cycle, right? Um, Debt cycles happen in two formats, on a short-term cycle and a long-term cycle. Long-term debt cycles have a tendency to last 50 to 75 years short-term debt cycles have a tendency to last somewhere between 10 and 15 years, right? There are some who believe that we are at the end of both of those debt cycles. We all hear on a constant basis the degree of government debt that exists, right? 21 trillion or 23 trillion or, you know, what's a trillion here or there anymore, it seems to, 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 to be. But the, the debt-to-GDP ratio, Um, which just basically measures the amount of, well, income that a country makes comparative to their debt, is in many cases and in many countries way out of whack. And it's very much out of whack in places like Japan, certain places in Germany. I mean, Japan, just this week, Tim, for an example of Mm -hmm. of how out of whack they are, their 10-year treasury was yielding negative yields again. Now, what's that mean? That means that people are willing to give the Japanese government money, and they're going to pay that government money to hold it for them. Now, how crazy is that? (laughs) That's insane. It is insane. (laughs) But it's going on. And so what does that mean? That means that there's just that much fear in the system. We saw this, you know, a a while back. I've done a number of shows on the degree of of negative yields that occurred in markets, and this goes back a number of years already. People can archive those uh, or or research those on our website, too, by the way. Um, But it it oftentimes signals some low points in markets that, that, that work themselves out. But those people who believe that we are, in fact, at the end of a debt cycle would suggest that business cycles no longer function. You now have a credit cycle. And one of the things that has been suggested and and considered in tons and tons of different types of research that when you're at the end of a credit cycle, the recession process as it relates to the market is inverted, meaning, as I said in the last segment, what you typically get through every historical context, at least in most people who are listening their lifetime, you get an inverted yield curve, you get a rise in unemployment rates, and you get the Fed cutting rates, before we ultimately enter into a recession, which then leads to a very bad, ugly bear market in stocks, right? That's the traditional movement in relationship. In a credit cycle-driven environment versus a business cycle-driven environment, it's the opposite. You get a reduction in asset prices, specifically speaking, risk assets, stocks and bonds, right? That causes corporations to, in fact, start to lose momentum as it relates to their earnings, which then brings about a recession. So it's the exact opposite in a credit-driven cycle versus a business-driven cycle. I know that's probably making some people's heads explode right now, <laughs> you know, listening to that, thinking, what did he just say? All I'm seeing is that there's a possibility that if, in fact, we're at the end of a debt supercycle the 50- to 75-year one, mm-hmm. in addition to the end of a debt mini cycle the 15 to 20 year one that this time could be different now again i'm not at a position where i'm ready to say yep this time is different but i gotta tell you Tim, we are researching and we are handling things on a day-by-day basis with the possibility that that could be the case <clears throat> and and so the things that investors have to be wary of is the fact that if there's the only thing constant is change is is right now i mean As you mentioned a couple of times on today's show, we've been dealt with some exceedingly historical things that we haven't seen before. I mean, over the past 15 years, we've never seen quantitative easing. We've never seen quantitative tightening. We've never seen put-call ratios and fear levels hit the levels that they have over the past two weeks. We've never had a point gain like what we had on Wednesday. I mean, it's all these holy cow, I've never seen that before kind of a scenario. Yeah, and, you know, look,
1: and so, I'm sorry, Chris, but I was, I was just going to mix in real quick. You know, it circled yeah. back to where you started today about artificial intelligence. And I think, if anything, yeah. technology has changed so much because now uh, y- you would have to set up that appointment to see your invi- your advisor, and, and you, you certainly still do that with your clients, but now with technology, it's, it's literally at your fingertips moment to moment, isn't it? Well, it is.
2: You know, and and not only that, but data is available on a moment by moment basis. And you know, not only that, Tim, but the internet. You know, let's yeah. face it, the internet is a great tool, but it's a terrible tool when it comes to trying to decipher data.
1: What do you mean? Everything's true on the internet.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything, exactly.
1: everything I, is true on the internet. Come on now, <laughs> Chris.
2: You're right. I keep for, I keep forgetting that. Yes. I, yes. Point being is that there is no shortage of people willing to throw out their opinions on the Internet. Much of many times people who are are qualified and and experienced to give that opinion and, and so certainly worth listening to. But lots and lots and lots of times it's just a shouting match.
1: Well, since you're on a sports station, I'll throw this in quick about opinions. As yeah. Antonio Freeman once said to reporters in Green Bay, "Hey, it's Green Bay. It's an opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody has one."
2: Indeed, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're exactly right. You know, and the same thing's true about markets. You know, and so I'd caution people who are out there on the chat rooms and the social media sites and. You know, just all those elements that are available to us at a moment's notice to get information with regards to where we may or may not be in markets. And, you know, it's not to say that anything that is provided by a professional with, you know, 30 years of experience in the business can't be wrong. We get it. You know, people are human. Markets are dynamic. Things are changing all the time. This artificial intelligence stuff is new. It's it's not something that ha- has has had the impact that it appears to be having, like what we have now. I mean, look at your phone. Mm-hmm. Your phone is a learning machine. You can't use that thing for less than five minutes before it's suggesting stuff that that you didn't even know you wanted.
1: (laughs) It is so true. Hold that thought, Chris. We'll come back and wrap it up. We want to make sure that people know how they can uh, touch base with you and your team. Good stuff. Chris Klein with us, Capstone Wealth Management. More as we continue here on the Big Ten seventy ten seventy 1070 AM, 100.9 FM, and always on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back. Final uh, two and a half minutes or so of the program today with Chris Klein from Capstone Wealth Management. Chris, one of my favorite shows, I don't even know if it's on anymore, was was called The Sports Reporters. And at the end of the show, they had all the sports reporters there and they would give their opinion on something and they would call it Parting Shots. So what is your parting shot for the show today?
2: Parting shot. Yeah, great point. Um, So here's what we know to be true. We know that currently the economy is not in a recession. It doesn't appear to be pointed to a recession. The market has got much less expensive. The forward price-to-earnings ratio of the S&P 500 right now has been pushed down to about 14.2. And and what's interesting is that's below the five-year average of 16.4. So people who are fundamentalists would look at that and say, hey, the market's fairly cheap. Now, is it historically cheap? No, it's not. Not anything like what we experienced at the bottom of the market in 2008 and eight and nine, but it is certainly cheaper. Um, that's good in terms of dragging in fundamental investors and, and value investors into the market. Uh, the IMF has, has stated again and again that it appears that we're going to have economic growth throughout next year. Some have said that the price movements in stock markets recently have gone way overboard and priced in a terrible 2019 so that if we get anything in terms of net growth, it should be reflected in in market prices. And I think all that is true. A couple of the data mining pieces that I think is is valuable um, is that when you have the kind of sell-off like what we had, and then you add to it what appears to be some capitulation that occurred on Monday and the put-call ratio that I talked about and the VIX and all that sort of stuff, it has a tendency to usher in a bottom. And so while we may not be ready to say that's the absolute bottom, we feel it's really, really, really close. And so when you start looking at the kinds of things that have happened in markets where you've had a 17% drop in the S&P 500 after a 52-week high four months prior, there's been five instances, and every time a year later, markets were up between 20 and
1: 35%.
2: That's the sort of stuff that we want to look at because, again, markets do have a tendency to rhyme. We're going to keep paying attention to the artificial intelligence stuff, Tim, and we're going to find ways to help integrate it to make decisions more quickly because guess what? It's not going away. It's just going to get bigger.
1: So, Chris, how do they get a hold of you and your team? Always good stuff here.
2: 866-596-9886 or info at careformywealth.com.
1: You, my friend, have a fantastic uh, holiday. We'll talk to you next year. 2019 is here before you know it.
2: Amen. Happy New Year, Tim. Thanks very right.
1: much. Good stuff. Chris Klein joining us uh, each and every week. Don't forget the podcast, too, out there if you missed any of the show today. Thanks for listening here on the Big 1070 1070 AM and 100.9 FM.